Shalom, shalom, friends. I started with that nikkun because it's Evdu et Hashem besimcha bolafan of We should serve God with joy, joyfully, joyfully. So um, uh, the liot besimcha uh, is uh, is a big mitzvah. It's a big mitzvah to be happy. And so we should find joy in our lives, not just because it's a mitzvah, but because there's apparently some other benefits as well. So um, let's start with a poll question. Um, let's start with a poll question here together. How do I experience joy? Number one, all the time at the core of my being. Number two, totally randomly and unexpectedly. Number three, when something nice happens for me. Number four, Rarely at all these days, a bit too numb. Okay, take a moment there. I know it's always hard to choose between these options, <laughs> or often hard, I should say. Okay, let's see if we have results here. Okay, a whole mix here, wow. 29% say all the time I, they experience joy at the core of their being. Very nice. 43% say totally randomly and unexpectedly. It's like almost unpredictable when joy will emerge and when it'll fade away. 14% say it's it's external, external when something happens for me. And 14% say rarely at all these days. A bit too numb. Okay. And um, I'm sure if we did this tomorrow or in a year from now, we'd have different results as well as these things change for us. But okay, friends, here we go. Perhaps the most obvious for proposal for how to live a life of kindness to others is that we live emanating joy. But it is far from obvious how cultivating our own joy will actually trickle over to others in ways that are helpful, meaningful, and healing for them. So let's start with understanding perspectives from Jewish thought on simcha, on joy. We know that we cannot live in a constant state of joy but rather that joy is often fleeting. David HaMelech, King David, taught in the evening one lies down weeping, but with dawn a cry of joy. Even further, David Melech writes, they who sow in tears will reap in joy. I was, I was not long ago at a friend's um, uh, baby celebration, baby naming celebration, where... Um, their previous um, pregnancy led to the, a stillbirth of both um, of both um, infants. I guess they were born. I don't know. Stillbirth is that is that a birth? Um, yeah, it's a birth. So um, so, anyways, it was they they they, uh, they 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 lost the twins, and then this baby was with the birth, and they sang this song. They they who sow in tears will reap in joy. Anyone who has experienced the sudden family tragedy understands what it means to suddenly shift from joy to sorrow. 
At times, one is even forced to deal with both emotions simultaneously, such as one who is in mourning for a relative during the Shalosh Regalim, the three pilgrimage festivals of Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, about which the Torah mandates, V'samachta Bechagecha, you are to rejoice in your holiday. Of course, you can't command emotions, so here they mean behaviors um, that are likely to produce positive emotions. Um, as a reminder of the what may have been empirically true, but is nonetheless comical to us, to, comical to us in postmodernity, they said, "What makes men happy? Meat and liquor. Men want men want meat and wine to be happy. What do women want? Jewelry. And what do the kids want? Toys." So you can see if that works for you. <laughs> that may have been true 2,000 years ago. It may still be true for most people. I don't know. Um, but that's how they understood what made people happy. And But you might be mourning, mourning the loss of a loved one at the same time where we're kind of asked to be joyful. Oh, oh, Sarah, thank you. Stillborn baby has died in the womb and thus is a delivered baby. Um, okay. Okay, so Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik reflected on the complexity of emotional life for a religious person. This is a great essay called A Theory of Emotions, which is kind of funny because the Rav is considered like uber cognitive, like uber intellectual, like in many ways, like not reflective on the emotions. But then he has this great piece here. He says, in the first place, the dialectical character of our existence and our total experience manifests itself in the halakhic principle of the totality of the emotional life. Judaism has insisted upon the integrity and wholeness of the table of emotions, leading like a spectrum from joy, sympathy, and humility, the conjunctive feelings, meaning they bring us together, to anger, sadness, and anguish, the disjunctive emotions, meaning they separate us apart. Absolutization of one feeling at the expense of others or the granting of unconditioned centrality to certain emotions while denoting others to a peripheral status, may have damaging complications for the religious de development of the personality. I love this! Because what Rav Soloveitchik is saying over here is, you have distorted Judaism if you make it up about the primacy of one emotional state. Don't think it's all about existential depth and, and sorrow and, and despair. Don't think it's all about being happy. Right. Don't don't pick out the emotions that you think are most important and make those most central in Judaism. Uh, -uh. The totality of emotional experience, being a full human being who feels the feels the fullness of life is what Judaism asks of us to be a full person. So part of the life journey seems to be about embracing the fullness of emotional life. Ecclesiastes most famously teaches that there is a time for everything. Everything has its season, it says in Kohelet. And there is a time for everything under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot the planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, heal, a time to wreck and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to wail and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embraces, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to discard, a time to rend and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. I think that in some ways, one of the ways we can understand kind of 
um, what we might call the extreme left or the extreme right, like the the what does it mean to talk about extremism might be that one thinks that only one of these states is worthy. An extreme pacifist is someone who denies any validity to war. An extreme hawk is someone who de who denies any form of pacifism, right? Um, and you could go down this list. Ex like it feels like oh, extreme love. When is that bad, right? But a form of love that doesn't enable boundaries. Let's say, right? Think about the the think about the productive nature of a Me Too movement that helps us learn boundaries, right? And then um, I, um, so too so so too for all of this a time to weep and a time to laugh. And so how do we think of extremism as a form that only celebrates one form of being in the world, right? As opposed to co the complexity of multiple ways of being in the world. Similarly, William Blake expressed beautifully. Um, so I normally take gendered language out, but I only do that when it's a translation. When someone wrote in the English language, I just keep it how they wrote it. So he says, he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy? But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. We are to embrace conflicting emotions so much that the Talmud imagines that even one type of joy competing with another type of joy would be little voices of heresy. So this is kind of fun. Here the rabbis engage the personification of joy. From where was this derived that we blow the trumpet during the Simchat Beit HaShueva, this celebration? Um, here I'm going to read the footnote. I don't normally read the footnote, but in case anyone is not familiar with Simchat Beit HaShueva, literally means the rejoicing over the drawing of water and refers to an annual grand event which took place at the Beit HaMikdash in celebration of water being drawn up to Jerusalem. As Jerusalem is situated on a hilltop, it was necessary for water to be drawn from below, and the drawing of water was therefore reason for great celebration. By the way, just noting noting what's newsworthy today without commenting on it, that Ben Gavir, a new um, member of the Knesset, has gone up to the Temple Mount in a way that might lead to some conflict. So, uh, so since we're talking about bringing water up um, to that spot, here also there's a very political moment today around going up. Uh, to the Temple Mount. In any case, the, um, it says over here in um, it says over here in the the Talmud of Sukkah, right? Because this is a Sukkot celebration. From where was this derived that we blow the trumpet during the Simchat Beit Shoeva? Rav Aina said from the verse Ushav Temayim and you shall draw water with um, while rejoicing. From Isaiah, there were two heretics. Oh, heretics! One was named Sasson, and one was named Simcha. Sasson said to Simcha, I'm better than you, <laughs> for it is written, they shall attain Sasson and Simcha, rejoicing in gladness, right? It says Sasson before Simcha. Simcha replied to Sasson, nope, I'm better than you, since it is written, the Jews had Simcha and Sasson, right? Gladness and rejoicing. Um so they're, they're saying, where is Simcha quoted before Sasson and where the opposite? And they're competing. So it's so strange. Why does the Talmud call them heretics? Why are they heretics? Well, it might be just be that they're arguing about this stuff. But it might also be, as we said, that um, they don't 
manifest themselves in conflict uh, between joy and sadness. It's between joy and joy. It rejects the totality of emotional life. By the way, it's interesting to note that Simcha is almost exclusively an Ashkenazic name. And Sason is almost exclusively a Sephardic last name. So that's kind of an interesting thing about how this these two words for joy kind of were manifest differently in, 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 in names in the Ashkenazi world and the Sephardic world. Perhaps the rabbis are teaching here that God doesn't want positive toxicity for us or to pretend that everything is joyful in life. Rather, as we stated above, we are to embrace the reality and the fullness of existence. I also, I, um, Alex, thanks for that. Kol Sasson v'kol Simcha. We sing that at weddings. Um, uh, we sing that at weddings. Uh, the voice of Sasson joy and the voice of Simcha joy. So I guess Sasson wins that one. <laughs> On the other hand, there's a real um, value to cultivating Simcha in one's life. Okay, we already talked about the totality of emotional life. But let's focus just on this. It is good to cultivate joy in life. I don't mean a type of happiness found in vanity, rather a deep sense of purpose, of connection, of meaning, which in turn brings us to true joy and contentment. If we don't, we can miss out on so much. Rav Chaim Vital wrote, sadness prevents a person from serving God and fulfilling the commandments. It prevents studying Torah and concentrating while praying. It negates one's good intentions to serve God. It is the beginning of the evil impulses, enticement, even of a righteous person, by showing them that they have no benefit from serving God because troubles come upon them, and so on. And they, it, the Yetzirah, one's evil inclination, also comes upon a person in the form of piety saying to them, how can you possibly think that a lump of earth, maggots and worms can come close to sanctify themselves with the holiness of the king of the universe? As Rabbi Elazar said, the divine presence does not dwell in the midst of sadness. Okay, so we may have loved some of the existentialists who, who taught us that the real meaning in life is found in despair and anguish and the loss of any hope, right? Um, we may have thought that um, that some of the um, Psalms and uh, and and Ecclesiastes, um, uh, some of these texts or Echa um, lamentations, some of these texts that bring us to a low state might be where you really find God. You find God in despair. You find God in brokenness. And yes, we do have those teachings, and they're very powerful. And yet, Rav Chaim Vital and some others, as we see, will say no, or maybe yes. There is an aspect of divine light you find in despair, in brokenness. But there's another aspect you find in celebration and in joy. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi in the Kuzari teaches, the general principle is our holy Torah is divided into awe, love, and joy. Each of these can bring you closer to God. Your submission to God on fast days is not dearer to God than your joy on Shabbat and festivals. You should rejoice in a mitzvah because of your love of it. You should realize the good God has bestowed on you. It is as if you were invited to the king's table to partake in the divine bounty. You will then be grateful both inwardly and outwardly. If your joy moves you to sing and dance, this is an act of divine service and of holding close to God, right? That we should reach some ecstasy where 
we tap into some cosmic joy that leads us to song and dancing. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, perhaps most famous for this, said that we should all tell ourselves jokes in, in order to achieve a more positive mental state, right? But think about the kind of jokes, not that are social jokes, but the kind of joke that makes yourself laugh. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I just did it to myself. I, it won't make sense if I shared what made me laugh. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, Rabbi Nachman. <laughs> Rabbi Nachman said, <laughs> Sorry. Rabbi Nachman says, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay. Rabbi Nachman says, <laughs> okay, sorry. Yeah. Here's a few ways to make yourself feel happy at times. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Rabbi Nachman says, Here's a few ways to make yourself feel happy at times. Generally speaking, you can make yourself feel happy by uttering nonsensical words that make you laugh and by telling jokes to yourself. Because depression and sadness can overcome a person more than anything else. It is hard to overcome this sadness, which can be very harmful to you. The Talmudic rabbis also expressed great admiration for joke tellers. While they were, um, by the way, oh my goodness, I'm going to age myself. Who is this woman here? Who is this? Dude, that's Joan Rivers. Joan oh, Rivers. <laughs> okay, Joan Rivers, thank you. I'm sorry, Joan. Is she alive? No. She's not no. alive. She's no, not active, plastic surgery accident. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Okay, Joan Rivers. Uh, in, in your memory, uh, we share this teaching in Joan Rivers' memory. Um, as you can tell, I, I'm, I was a big fan of her comedy. Um, while they were conversing, two men passed by, whereupon Eliyahu remarked, these two have a share in the world to come. Rev. Broca then approached and asked them, what is your occupation? They replied, we are jesters. When we see men depressed, we cheer them up. Right? Very interesting. Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, emerges and says, ah, those two guys? They have a share in the world to come. Rav Broca is so interested. He says, whoa, what do they do? Are they doctors? Are they teachers? Are they social workers? They must do something really righteous. What are they? They're comedians. They're comics. Comics have an automatic um, access to the world to come. Now, now, I don't know if that's true of some of the, the ones who are, you know, making their living by breaking people down and, you know, defaming people. Um but the type of comics who build people up rather than tear them down. So much of comedy these days is, um, you know, more more heat than light. But but there is there is thankfully still some good comedy out there. Um, and I would love for you to write in the chat some of your favorite favorite comics. Um, I have I have been enjoying this guy, um, Sebastian. Anyone ever heard of this guy, Sebastian? Uh, Maniscalco or something. And if you want to see one skit that you might enjoy, it is this, um, he, he he's an Italian guy who's married to a Jewish woman. And he talks about the Italian, the first, his first Italian uh, uh, experience with a Pesach Seder. And I'm not going to ruin it by telling it. Um, but but it, 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 if you look it up, it's only like three minutes long and it's pretty funny. So, it, um, and you should send it to someone you know who is intermarried as an Italian Catholic with a with a Jew. 
Um, Monty Python, thank you. Seinfeld, Seinfeld. Okay. It seems that, okay, Modi, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eddie just showed me a funny Modi one comparing Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazic Jews and how how Sephardic Jews with their full being wish you a Shabbat Shalom and Ashkenazic Jews are like, Kashabis, Kashabis. And Sephardic Jews are like the deepest Shabbat Shalom. It's very funny. You got to find it. Or maybe Eddie can share it. It seems that bringing joy to others is a great mitzvah. Further, we cannot seek joy for ourselves in the first place without extending it to others as well. Consider Maimonides' teaching about the mitzvah of Simchat Yom Tov, cultivating joy on the holidays. This is very important. If you know anything about the Maimonides, remember this one. Um, men should eat and drink wine, for there's no happiness without partaking of meat, nor is there happiness without partaking of wine. Now you might say, uh-oh, do I have to eat meat every day to be a happy person? Now, apparently that only applied to the time the temple stood, when the temple stood and you were eating the sacrifice brought to God, right? But no longer, of course, would that apply that you can't have the full joy of a barbecue tofu, right? The barbecue <laughs> tofu and the joy it can bring to people. When a person eats and drinks in celebration of a holiday, that he is obligated to feed converts, orphans, widows, and others who are destitute and poor, in contrast, the person who locks the gates of their courtyard and eats and drinks with their ch his children and his wife without feeding the poor and the embittered is not indulging in rejoicing associated with a mitzvah, but rather the rejoicing of his gut. And with regard to such a person, the verse applies. Their sacrifices will be like the bread of mourners. All that partake thereof shall become impure, for they kept their bread for themselves alone. This happiness is a disgrace for them, as it is written, I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your festival celebrations. Right? So it says, he contrasts Simchat Mitzvah, Simchat Yom Tov, with Simchat Kreso. What is Simchat Kreso? The kind of joy that is just the joy of the gut. Right? You go lock yourself alone, and you put on the TV show you like, and you go stuff your face, right? What is the simcha, the simcha that Judaism wants, my money says? The joy where you open your doors and you, you, you welcome into your home or into your space those who are downtrodden and you make sure that they are fed as well. So here he teaches us, yeah, there is a low level of joy and we all have the right to it, the joy of just physical sensation. Maybe you feel joy in, in various forms of physical sensations, such as food or the like. This is okay. We are animals also, right? But you want a spiritual joy? It's going to come through giving. It's going to come through solidarity. It's going to come through community. It's going to come through making sure the hungry are fed. That's, that's the kind of joy we're seeking, not just the laugh of a comedian, not just the joy of a good meal, not just kind of a, a physiological... Um, ele, you know, elevated a hormonal state, but actually a um, a spiritual joy of connectivity. There are some forms of simcha that may be simple, as we said, such as merely having a seat at the table with community accompanied by delicious food. This seems like a basic and eternal truth about human needs. But there's this other form of simcha that's more complex. Rav Shlomo Volbi taught simcha results from the unification of opposing elements. <clears throat> Indeed, we want not only the fullness and totality of experience, as noted, 
but also we want integration and harmonization rather than living in a world of binaries and polarities, right? We want to take our binary experiences, our polar polarizing experiences, and, and think about how to integrate and harmonize. Rabbi Isaac Arama, Isaac Arama, a great 15th century Spanish scholar, taught that the sound of one shofar blast, the trua, is the sound of fear and trembling. The sound of another shofar blast, the tekiyah, is the sound of joy, hope, and faith in a redemption to come. And on Rosh Hashanah, we seek to instill in us both fear and joy, and not simply as two distinct emotions, but rather a harmony and synchronization of the two. It prepares us to live meaningfully in society today where we must carry both a serious and heavy commitment to addressing dark injustices and oppression while also living and learning with joy and with the optimism that there is light at the end of the tunnel. So too, perhaps, a meditation upon death. How many of us are really gurus that we have no fear of death? Maybe we've never had cancer. Maybe we've never had a surgery that we were likely not to survive. Maybe we never had an illness that we actually thought we wouldn't get out of it, right? So um, uh, anyone who has knows what a fear of death really is if we've had a near-death experience. And so fear of death is only natural and normal. Few are going to overcome that. And yet there are those who live with a liberation with they're not only afraid of death, they also celebrate mortality in a certain sense, right? So too, it's not it's not like they get in a mood, now I'm afraid of death and now I'm, I'm liberated from it, but it is a harmonization of living with, with that complexity together. Cultivating joy and creating spaces for others to cultivate joy is a crucial part of our kindness practice. My friend and a contemporary scholar, Rabbi David Jaffe, shares in his book, which I recommend, changing the world from the inside out. Rabbi Nachman refers to these emotions as lev shavur, a brokenheartedness, and sar, pain, right? These painful experiences um, are brokenhearted. They're painful. Simcha is a key tool for change makers. Despair is a partner of oppression. Someone in despair is not going to put up much of a fight against oppression. Like, this is very important, right? Oppressed people who remain in a state of despair cannot be change makers to the full potentiality, right? There needs to be some level of, jo- of joy that accompanies the despair for a- oppressed populations to overcome, right? Think about the joyful songs that have emerged with liberation movements, songs that carry words of despair, but deep words of hope, right? Songs that are about isolation and solitude, um, but also songs that are about community and collectivity. There is a sad word in in German, uh, Schadenfreude, Schadenfreude. I don't speak German, Schadenfreude, okay. Um, which means finding pleasure in the experience of another's misfortune. But this is a very well-known word or concept from the German language. But there's a less well-known opposite joyful word in German as well. Freudenfreude. I think I, I think I mentioned this uh, um, a few sessions ago, which means finding joy in another's good fortune. On this note, Pirkei Avot, 
famously teaches, who is rich? One who is content with what they have. The simple read of this is that we can learn to be satiated with what we have and not always wanting more. But there's another read that lines up with Freudenfreude, who is rich, one who is content with what they have, not what he or she has themselves, but with what they, the other, has. We can and must find joy not only in our own gains, but in the gains of, of others. How amazing would that be? Imagine if, imagine something really great happens to you. Maybe that for you is like, you bought a lottery ticket that you won $200. Maybe it's that someone gave you free tickets to a sporting event you love. Maybe it's that you're dating and, and you know, you didn't think someone liked you and actually they liked you, right? I mean, imagine something that brings you like, a, whoa, like that's a great day, right? Okay, that's great. But imagine if you got just as high, you got just as, as big of a high from your friend or your family member that had that same experience. It made you just as happy that they got it as when you got it. I mean, how great of a way would that be to live, right? That when your coworker, your friend, your family member, I mean, it, it, I, 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 I think the easiest way to imagine this is a parent for a child, right? If you have a child and your child something good happens to them. You, you see how happy they are. And you're almost happier than they are, right? Like, like that feels like an obvious way. But imagine if that extended to other relationships as well. Like it didn't, it wasn't jealousy or it wasn't, oh, that makes me even sadder because now they got it. I didn't get it. And I'm not blaming anyone who feels that. That's only natural, right? Um, but imagine if we could live that way as well. In addition to finding joy in our personal lives and, and in that of others, we can find it in our ancestors, we can experience the joy of learning Torah and history and tapping into the spiritual realities and emotions of our, gro our great forebears, right? I mean, I mean, I mean, um, how cool is that? That like that when you reach that moment of the Torah where you see their relief, you feel the joy with them. Like you feel them cross through the sea, and you're like crying because you feel yourself crossing through the sea. The contemporary author and activist, Lamarad Owens, I know I've quoted him a lot in this series, um, has his own way of expressing tapping into the emotions of ancestors. He writes in his work, Love and Rage, when I experience rage, I understand that I am experiencing the rage of all my ancestors. When I experience love, I'm also experiencing the love of all my ancestors. It is the trans-historical love that is often felt as resilience that keeps me and many of us alive. And when we fall deeply into the love that we are being gifted, then we begin to thrive. And it is in that thriving that begins to disrupt the systems of violence that were only created to annihilate us. We disrupt these systems because we survive the system, summon our joy, and dance into our thriving. I am my ancestors' wildest dreams because I thrive. Right, I love that. And when we tap into our our black ancestry, when we tap into our our Mexican ancestry, when we tap into our Ashkenazic, um, Ukrainian or Lithuanian ancestry, right, we tap into our ancestry. However, we understand it, and for many of us, it's multiple, not singular. Right, we many of us tap into the 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 um, the as we talked quite a bit about um, the intergenerational trauma. But there's the intergenerational joy that's there as well for us to tap into. This trans-historical love, right, that can be found 
um, in people's um, generations of trauma and before them and after them as well. And we shouldn't simplify our ancestors as if they only experienced one thing, right? These were full beings just like us. Okay, friends, to conclude here, there's so many places and ways to cultivate joy and to share joy with others. It is a spiritual project and a Jewish enterprise. And indeed, at the center of our work, to build a kinder world, a world which revolves around chesed. Let us do our utmost to spread joy throughout the world from the inside out. Okay, dear friends, I would love to hear from you. I'm sorry I wasn't reading most of the chats. I see there's a lot over there. I hope to return to it, but now I want to listen to you. <laughs> Hi, Lauren. Hi. Um, you know what? It's the forced joy that never works for me. Like like Purim and Simchatara, the too much drinking, the forcing yourself to be happy doesn't work. But but sometimes something that like organically happens, like we've been, Makom has gone back to having um, vegan dinners and um, just, you know what, the joy of just from the time you wash your hands, Tomotsi, it's a lunch table and everybody is like singing um, Negunim, you know, world. And it's like, there's such joy in that. There, there can be so much joy just from a, a simple little thing like with a bunch of people. But this forced joy, I, I, don't, I don't know how you manage to, to be happy uh, those times because it's just, it's too expected. Anyways. Thanks. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah. So, and, and, and I think there's a, another dimension to what Lauren's sharing here as well. Not only like the notion of commandedness, like you must now be happy, go do those things that make you happy, right? Um, but also there's a sadness that comes from doing things that we have been told through our socialization should make us happy and they don't. Maybe you were told sex should make you happy and it didn't. Maybe you were told a Thanksgiving dinner with your family should make you happy and it didn't, right? Maybe you were told that this career that you're immersed in was supposed to make you happy and it doesn't, right? And there's kind of a deeper sadness that emerges from doing those things that you feel like, oh, even this isn't working. I thought, right, obviously those things weren't going to work, but these things aren't going to work, right? And so, um, but then as Lauren shared there as well, there's these other things that we build into our life. And for her, it was like something like singing. Um, um, and we all have those things that sometimes kind of hit us over the head in a good way. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. Hello. So um, I, I'll speak quite personally that I had to work my way through my own trauma stories and crap before I could find the joy that lives in me and that I emanate on a fairly regular basis. Um, and that that gives me great delight. And I guess I would really love to hear from others how to deal with that, that joy when faced with people who are truly suffering. Um, for instance, my dearest friend whose husband is disappearing with his ALS and she's struggling trying to keep him going and hold a full-time job and managing to see her grandchildren and do everything else in her life that brings her joy. But she's 
really suffering from on many, many levels. I, I find myself wanting to hold her, but letting myself just emanate huge amounts of joy with her husband who is struggling to even sit up in bed um, is, it's, it's a struggle for me. And so I'd really love to hear from anyone else about when we feel as if we emanate a lot of joy in the world, do we shut it down or, or dim it down in the face of huge suffering? What do we do with that joy? Yeah, beautiful. Okay, I wanted to share one reflection there. And before we go to other people's um, comments, I wanna see if others wanna comment on Sarah's really important question here. And the one reflection I want to share is um, we might think of joy as getting to like that. If it's a zero to 10 scale, like think of the pain chart in the hospital, zero to 10. Um, if you think about that on a, on a joy chart, we might think like, oh, joy, I want to be in a nine to 10. But perhaps one other dimension of joy is just getting to a higher number than we're currently at. If someone is really suffering at a one, right? It might be that the goal is not to get to a nine or 10, but how can we hold the burden with them and sit with them in their pain in a way where that one can feel a little bit more like a two? It's a little bit more bearable just because they're not completely alone in it. But I, I, I want to hear others on Sarah's important um, question here. Anyone want to want to reflect on that? Yeah, if I can say something, because I dealt with that a bit, a friend of mine um, suddenly uh, found out that he had stage four cancer and he was deteriorating and deteriorating and he he decided for medically assisted death which wasn't an easy decision um and i i was with him at the time and all you can do don't expect joy um all you can do is give compassion and give an ear and listen and don't judge so not only with, you know, somebody who's who's opted for made, but also um, just don't negate if somebody's really suffering, if they're really going downhill, don't negate it. Just listen to them and, and be an ally. That That's how I see it. Anyone, before we move on, anyone else want to share on that on this point? Thank you for that, Lauren. Hi, Gary. Yes, please, Gary. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, well, I kind of equate a little bit of, of of joy in situations that Sarah said is kind of like the joy of doing a mitzvah. And if somebody is in, in a bad situation, either medically or psychologically, uh, the joy, the internal joy that I receive is knowing that I'm helping this individual through uh, uh, the situation that that they're doing, be it on uh, on a deathbed or medical issues or psychological issues, and it's not the same joy that I have when I go to a wedding and celebrate with this simka, but it's it's the internal joy that I get from uh, from helping these people, uh, my friends or whatever, uh, through a difficult time. And uh, if it's uh, if it's and if it's on in on a deathbed then I got to spend extra time with them to get to know them a little bit more than maybe I wouldn't have if I was doing uh, that type of, uh, uh, if I didn't do that. And if they pass on, then, you know, the, the joy of getting to know them more in a different light uh, brings brings uh, light to me and, and joy. 
But is I'm I'm curious, is feeling my joy from the mitzvah that I'm giving the same as emanating joy? Mm-hmm. That's that's where it gets confusing for me. Mm-hmm. If I may, um, if I may um, long story short, though, um, I think that um, while doing what they need you to do is what's best at that point, they might need you to emanate joy. That might actually be something that helps them. Now, if they want you to stop talking about like, you know, how great everything is going, your grandkids are honor students at every school at, then you might want to stop talking about it though, but they might not want you to talk about, you know, they might not want you to hide that you're happy also. I mean, it might help them to see that. Mm-hmm. And how do you manifest this joy? It would seem to me that you have an an internal joy and that no matter what the circumstance, you don't hide it or you don't attempt to conceal it because that internal joy is part of who you are. I agree. They need you at that moment. And if that internal joy is part of you, then they need you not something like half of you but all of you i want to go back and and just relate the the book by mitch album tuesday with maury which was difficult for for mitch album but it surely brought joy uh uh to maury uh as a result of that and i think uh, that was uh as I, I always always butcher your name. <laughs> Aglia had mentioned that it's a joy to them uh, for whatever the reason, and they're looking forward to seeing you. Cheryl, you want to jump in there? I, I just I, I missed a couple classes with a house full of people here, but which gave me a lot of joy, by the way. Um, okay. But um, th- this seems to be the first kindness class dealing directly with ourselves. As opposed to, so it's kindness to ourselves of experience joy. Am I am I right in that? I mean, am I understanding it right? I just wanna, I just wanna clarify yeah, yeah, myself. Yeah, I think sort of we're saying secondarily, we want to bring joy to others. But the primary kindness we're looking at here is living with a certain joy such that it emanates. Right. Okay. Yes, Kim. Uh, and the other thing is that um, in another class that I'm taking, we we have recently spoken about whether we get more joy, just as it happened to be, out of giving than receiving at this time of year. I mean, at this time of year, that's why we happen to talk about it, but it doesn't just limit it to this time of year. And 100% of us said that we would rather, we we get more joy out of giving. So um, the recipients of those, you know, of, of the joy that we feel, I mean, it's kind of a selfish thing. <laughs> We're getting all this joy. Um, I think it's important to be a joyful recipient is all when, you know, an appreciative recipient too, but um, all the, oops, I better move. Um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of talk about being, giving and receiving and what makes you happier or which, where, where you would rather be. So um, I just wanted to bring that up too. So, and uh, also Aglaia that you put in the chat about Josh Lambert, he's a, colleague of both of my daughters so I know him well so (laughs) 
anyway, uh, that's very interesting. Um, good class. I, you know, I love the whole comedian thing. And I was wondering, as you were talking about that, if that is where, I don't know, is that where we derive the, the Jewish comic, the Borscht Belt comic, <laughs> all, that, all of that stuff, you know, all of that stuff, does it come historically and from, from, from the Talmud and, and everything like that, all, all about, about making people laugh? <laughs> well, I wish it was, it, it emerged only from a prescriptive rather than a kind of historical descriptive place. But I well, think, what's that? I think about Jackie Mason, whose brothers yeah. were all rabbis and he turned out to be the comedian, you know. I never thought well, he, he was, was a very, rabbi too, actually. I know, I, I know, I never thought he was particularly funny, but, <laughs> yes, right. uh, but you know, he was a, a certainly a respected comic and everything like that. Yes. So, anyway. This is a great class. Awesome. I appreciate thank it. You. Thank you for that for that point, and thank you for that point around giving, um, and how that's uh, that's how it ought to be, uh, you know, uh, and and receiving as well. Okay, Eileen and then Aglaya. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, I have found great joy in looking up at the sky. I am fascinated by clouds. And it's really hard. For example, yesterday we had these tremendous colorful clouds and there were um, rays of sun coming through some of the openings. And it was just something I wished I could stop the car and photograph so I could paint it later. But something simple like that brings great joy in my life and possibly because I'm an artist. So I have an appreciation and maybe I also have an additional sensitivity to some of these peak moments. Beautiful, Eileen, thank you for that. And, you know, I, I, I would suspect for many of us, what is almost a universal experience of, of, of a love of nature, of whether it is the sound of the waves at the beach, whether it is a sunset, whether it is snowy mountains, right? That is not merely about, it's not merely um, uh, aesthetic. It's not just about the beauty of it, but it's about transcending the self. We get beyond um, our smallness. We feel connected to something much larger. That's what makes it a spiritual experience in many ways as, as you're sharing there. And I think there's a deep joy in um, getting beyond the self you know, um, the confines of the self. Thank you so much for that, Eileen. Yeah. Hi, Glea. Okay. I'm going to be a little self-indulgent here. So, but um, I was actually, um, long story short, though, like reflecting on Viktor Frankl in an email that I read to one of my old professors. And I'll just like read this little part. Okay. So discussing how the goal to outlive the war was just as important for survival demonstrated that Frankl was setting up a balance paradigm. The meaning lies in facing both the basest and the loftiest, loftiest potentials within humans. Meaning eventually rips the leaves off Adam and Eve and is completely apath apathetic about their shame issues. Now, uh, okay. Um, I don't know, uh, hold on, in the end though, just skipping ahead though, in the end, we all end up full frontal just to realize that we might have wanted that liposuction or lift or implants or whatever after all. 
Now, the reason why I actually brought that up, though, was because of the fact that we were talking about, well, we do also have to have the, you know, sadder side of things, too. And one part of Viktor Frankl that, like, really just stuck and stood out to me that actually hit home and helped, helped me out quite a bit um, through difficult times was... One part of it, he says, okay, you will, the thing that's making you anxious and like driving you crazy and stuff like that, like you really just want to sit in the corner and just freak out over this. If you turn it into something funny, then it makes things like a lot very different. Now, for me, words are funny. So I turned something that was like, I took words and I put all kinds of funny words in there. Oh, also, please don't want, read um, Unclean Lips by Josh Lambert unless you are okay with a lot of um, profanity. Okay, I had an 87 year old student who was freaked out by the profanity in it. Okay, but long story short, though, um, yeah, so it has a lot to do with just kind of like it was standing out to me today that, well, we do have all this sadness, we do have all this sorrow and everything, though. However, though, bringing, you know, find a way to make it funny and, you know, it, it does actually take a lot of the edge off of the sorrow. But also, another thing that is that, um, the when he was describing how when Frankel was describing how people he could tell when people were not going to survive was when they lost interest in finding like finding out well the Americans have advanced to this point or something like that so perhaps if you actually that's when it's actually at, at scariest when you don't actually want to look up at the sky when you it doesn't even matter to you when you've looked up at the sky and seeing clouds and seeing a sunset and everything though. Now, am I a happy person? No, I was a person who wrote, nope, I'm not a happy person. I put these like weird giggles into everything though, but I'm not a happy person though, but I know how to fake my way through it. However, though, I'm not, I'm not a hopeless case. So in other words, though, I kind of think of it in terms of, well, it has a lot to do with, you know, how do we even create meaning so that we do stay alive? And well, not worry about whether or not we want liposuction. That's my thing. That's my issue for today. I don't know. I want liposuction, but anyway. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much, uh, um, Eileen. Did you just unmute? No. Okay. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. So much I want to say, but we haven't heard from Steve or Eddie yet. I want to see if either of them want to jump in at all. No pressure. Hi, Steve. Excuse me. How? Good to be here, and and I share everybody's comments. I, I, Aglaia's uh, self assessment gave me a lot of joy that somebody could be so honest in front of other people that she doesn't know personally is a monumental achievement, and and it fills me with joy when somebody can accomplish something like that. So. Yamaka tip to you. I, I I am delighted to have heard what you said. Sometimes I have brought joy, and I, I know that sounds so conceited, to friends when I didn't even know I was doing anything. My best friend Don uh, passed away about a year ago, and late in life he did something that Cheryl uh, just mentioned. He said, if you could take me anywhere, take me to see the clouds. And so we would go for a ride in Glendale or, or Phoenix. And in the middle of the most crowded street in the world, stop, stop. I have to take a picture of that. And I was getting a little bit frustrated, but his sense of joy 
he'll sort of reduced my frustration uh, and and fear of being crashed into by another car. Another uh, time he said to me at the very end, but he could barely move, he said, you bring life to me. And I didn't realize that 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 meant anything. And I'm not really even sure what I'm trying to say other than sometimes proximity and closeness is what gives people joy. My biggest joy is when I'm near people like this crowd here today. Thank you. That's all. Beautiful. Steve, thank you so much. Beautiful. Eddie, do you want to jump in? Yeah, no. Uh, thank you, everybody. This is a great class. Um, I, I was really honing into the piece of feeling joy of others' wins and victories. Um, I oftentimes don't feel jealousy of my friends and, and uh, family members. And the reason why I don't feel jealousy uh, is because I'm actually rooting for them. Um, I'm rooting for their success. I want my friends to do the best. I want my family to do the best. And I, I really hope that that type of mentality is something that we can bring in to a lot of our work and a lot of our, our relationships. How different is it um, that you view and treat people when you're rooting for them, when your success feels like your own wins and your own successes, and when you celebrate them um, as if it's you. Um, and I, I really stuck with that concept. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, anyone want to make a final comment here before we wrap up? It's been a joy. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I like that. Great to be with you all as always. And um, there's so much great Torah on Simcha uh, and how to do it. And of course, we're not even, we're not looking at anything pathological here. We're not dealing with that, that dimension, <clears throat> but just looking spiritually and intellectually on how we can do things throughout the day to add joy to us and not viewing that as hedonistic, but viewing that as a spiritual practice, a Jewish practice, because if, if, it, if we can fill that well, it can emanate more deeply. And as Cheryl reminded us, when that simcha emanates, it will increase the joy once again. So it is the very pouring out of joy that actually that giving actually fills it back up once again. And then the, the fountain kind of flows flows over. So next week, we are looking at avoiding laziness. If you're a very lazy person, you want to skip that one. You want to make sure to skip next week if you if you like being very lazy. But don't worry, in the following session, we're going to talk about cultivating hope and breaking down despair. So, um, uh, and, and if you're very, uh, if you like to be very negative and hate hope, you should skip that one. Um, or maybe we should all just join every week together and be happy together. So have a very joyful day. Great to see you all. Happy 2023. Okay. Lord, you won't be lazy anymore. If you come next week, you won't be lazy anymore. You can fulfill your New Year's resolution dream. Okay. God bless.